You're listening to a climate edition of Business Extra, a podcast by the National in Abu Dhabi. I'm your host, Cody Combs, speaking to you from the COP28 Summit in Dubai. It's one thing to talk about sustainability and environmental wisdom, but it's another to actually deliver on the promise of it. When the rubber meets the road in a world dominated by business investing and entrepreneurship. That's where Dynamic Planet and its founder and CEO, Kristen Reckberger, come in. It's a firm that helps advance and help markets that invest in areas that restore nature and focusing on developing responsible businesses with high-impact partners that regenerate landscapes, seascapes, and communities, just to name a few. I'm joined now in our COP28 studio by Kristen Reckberger. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Kristen, amid all the anticipation, the conjecture, and frankly, high expectations, What do you make of COP28 in Dubai so far? Well, it's been busy, that's for sure. There have been some big announcements on loss and damage and some other other outcomes. Um, Obviously, uh, the location was always a big topic of discussion, and um, it's, I think, being hosted well. And I think that there's been a lot of rich conversation about where we really need to go with actually just cutting emissions. And less. there's been less conversation, I think, in this COP about kind of you know, financial mechanisms and all the other kind of things that can feed into that. I think people are very adamant about cutting emissions in this COP. And also I've seen a lot of activity in nature. And even though the nature pavilion's all the way at the end of the blue zone and ocean's a little bit within that, I do think nature has more of a presence at this COP than any other climate COP before, which is great to see. And I want to follow up. You mentioned the economics a little bit there in that answer. Something that gets thrown around a lot, especially in recent years, at these COP conferences is the phrase climate finance. To the lay people out there, what does that mean? Climate finance means, you know, we have this fossil fuel economy that we're all enjoying and living off of, which allows us our consumerism and, and production of the last, you know, couple hundred years since the Industrial Revolution. We all know we need to shift towards a clean, green, regenerative economy, a circular economy and not dig up resources under the earth to do that, use new, new energy. The question is always, who pays for that? You know, who bears that cost? And that's always what's, what's hashed out at these things as far as wealthier developed countries are often asked to pay for uh, poor developing countries to carry that burden. And that can be public financing from governments or private financing from banks or, or even philanthropy. So climate finance is kind of the sum of all those who pays for this question. And you also hear blue finance, green finance get thrown around a lot. What are the differences, if any? Well, green finance is for land and blue finance is for the ocean and even sometimes fresh water, depending on who you're talking to. Really, you can think of money um, helping that energy transition. So it can be happening in the land economy or the or the ocean economy. On land, that means maybe more solar and wind and less fossil fuels. It can also mean more nature. Same in the ocean. And it also affects our food systems. So um, our food consumption is very energy uh, depleting. And so our traditional way of growing food or even fishing takes a lot of energy. And there's smarter ways to do that. So green finance is for the land and blue finance is for the ocean. We heard at COP28 so far about dozens of billions of dollars being pledged toward different areas of climate financing, loss and damage fund, the Green Climate Fund. How important are these funds? What exactly will they finance and which countries are going to benefit from that? I know there's a lot in that question. Yeah, basically, you know, wealthier groups, whether they're individuals or countries, are asked to compensate 
the, the, the groups that need them to transition. So um, loss and damage is often asked for by developing countries to pay for them carrying the burden of hit, feeling the climate, feeling climate change now in places where they live uh, because the industrialized countries basically were able to develop and use a lot of resources, including from the developing countries, to develop. So there's this kind of tug of war going on between who pays for things. And what are some of the misconceptions people have about climate finance, be it people, average people or business people, entrepreneurs? I think different people think about it really differently, and it depends on what, what you just mentioned. Do you sit in government? Do you sit in a big business? Do you sit in a smaller business? If you're entrepreneurial, you're coming up with these amazing innovations, right? And you're thinking about what is the new way to grow food? Can I grow food in a lab so we don't have to have cows and agriculture taking up so much land, for example? In a larger multinational, you're probably thinking about supply chains. How, where do I get where do I get food from from a grower, and how is that packaged? And then where does that travel to to the to the buyer? And then in government, you're looking at the whole ecosystem of your country and thinking about um, supply and demand and where where things come from and where they're going and how that can be more energy efficient. And also um, with energy efficiency, sometimes there's a a bigger um, down payment in the beginning to deal with that transition, but then it pays for itself in the long term and is a better way to, to do business. You're the founder and CEO of Dynamic Planet. What is Dynamic Planet? Dynamic Planet uh, has been in business for over a decade, helping advance uh, markets to restore nature. So the question I had, uh, I was an executive at National Geographic for a long time, and I, I just was wondering when I was working there, is there a way that you can actually restore nature and make money? Um, how can we invest in businesses that restore nature? So I set up Dynamic Planet really to help groups think about three things. Can you restore nature, make money, and drive local business benefits to local communities? And we're finding that we can. We do that um, working in and around marine protected areas, for example. The ocean is fairly bankrupt. We basically, through human history, taken out everything we want and thrown in everything we don't want, thinking that it's an unlimited resource. But we now know it's a limited resource because it's a finite uh, space, even though it's 70% of our planet. So with marine reserves, you can actually, within five to 10 years, if you give time and space for the ocean to heal, it replenishes itself. So if it's really, really depleted, the fish will come back. When fish come back, people wanna come in and check out tourism inside the reserve. The fish spill over because the moms are big enough to have lots of babies, which replenishes fish inside the marine reserve. And then the eggs and larger fish also spill out over. So it replenishes fisheries. And that also helps with carbon. So it's a, it's a three-way win of building tourism, fisheries, and carbon. So we work in geographies for that kind of, kind of replenishment system. So Dynamic Planet works in different, different areas of the world on, on different types of marine reserves. And also in the past, we've worked on uh, regenerative landscapes as well. I want to go back to something you said. You said you worked for National Geographic. And a couple of days ago, I told somebody I was trying to interview you. And they said, oh, she's way ahead of her time. Told me about your time at National Geographic. And you, they said that you were an environmentalist before. It was <laughs> kind of cool to be an environmentalist. How do you come up with something like your current company, Dynamic Planet. How did they, you already said it? Sort of the, you, the wheels were turning back when you're at National Geographic. Well, we're based in Washington D.C., and I remember when I left National Geographic and started Dynamic Planet, I said, "I, you know, we really want to basically, you know, 
build conservation businesses or, you know, ha- invest in businesses that restore nature. And people would look at me like, is that an oxymoron? And the good news is nobody says that anymore. People say, oh, yeah, you can definitely build a business and restore nature. You can do that through nature-based solutions. You can do that through clean energy. You can do it through new food systems. So I think common sense prevails. I think you can look around and be like, well, I wonder why we do it that way and just think of a different way to do it and maybe be more energy efficient. And also, uh, let's remember that we're not just in a climate crisis. We're in a biodiversity climate crisis. We're in an equity crisis. We're in a waste crisis. That's a lot of crises at the same time. So there's a lot of things to fix. And there's a lot of perspectives different people can bring to the table, whether you're a mom, a community leader, a fisher person, um, a big business person, a government leader, and a voter. You know, there's all sorts of ways to get involved in these different pathways of regeneration. Where exactly does Dynamic Planet do work and what communities does it help? I'll give you an example. So we were really excited um, to be invited to work with the government of Dominica. And Dominica is an island in the Caribbean. And they're between Guadalupe and Martinique. And they asked us to come and assess their marine waters. And so Dynamic Planet partnered with National Geographic Pristine Seas. And we did an expedition there last fall. And did what we do in most places in national waters where we have a boat that we work with local people and local scientists to assess the national waters of a place, which is in three levels. On the surface, we have dives for filming and and science. In the middle, we have a submarine to look at the middle layer, the the water column in that about a thousand thousand meters deep. And then we have drop cams that go all the way to the bottom. And so when we look at uh, the national waters of a place and we have a, a film crew with us too, Uh, We premiered a National Geographic film that was really cool. It's on YouTube for free right now called um, Dominica Nature Island with National Geographic. And basically it's a 45-minute film. And like most places, people don't um, know the ocean treasures in their backyard. So we were excited that Dominica actually has a couple hundred native sperm whales right offshore. And so a couple weeks ago, Dominica announced the world's first sperm whale reserve. So we're helping them create a tourism plan for that, um, which includes permitting and pricing where the sperm whale reserve will pay for itself. And um, it'll include better fishing, better tourism, and and carbon sequestration with with, uh, these sperm whales. Nature, not to get too esoteric, but growing up, you sort of experience it as it's free. It's not priced. The air we breathe, you go out, you see the sunshine, you see the trees. How do you keep it free, so to speak, but at the same time put value on it so there's potential return on investment for businesses? And so people start looking at it like an asset. They probably should anyway because we need it. But does that make any sense? I don't yeah. Know. yeah. So it's, been, it's interesting. Like some people would say, you know, you can't monetize everything. It's it's kind of crass to put a price on everything. And And the truth is, when we can price something, we can value it. And nature's never been priced and, and therefore valued properly. So we're in this we're in this position of like, how do we make up, even though it's our life support system and ecosystems are the foundation for societies and economies, how do we really include it? It's been an externality for so long. How do we include it in, in capitalism so it makes sense? So we actually can quantify increasingly a lot of these services beyond the normal commodities of nature. So um, we know that, for example, in New York City, um, those forests upstream in the Catskill Mountains of, of New York, they, they save New York City, I don't know how many hundreds of millions of dollars, because it's a natural water system. The forests bring the water into New York City. 
which is, you know, that's a natural ecosystem service that you're able to quantify over time. Um, and that's just one of many examples of how we can look across all sorts of ecosystem services beyond the norm of like how much that fish is priced into not only that, but how, how many services the fish is providing by keeping the water clean, for example, in that area. So it can be economically positive to protect the environment. In totally. Yeah, absolutely. And you can quantify a lot of things, even if people won't pay for them. We can now quantify them in ecosystem services. We're in an era of increased environmental awareness, but do you find that you still need to change a lot of minds to try to convince businesses and governments that, yes, it's possible to conserve the planet and still be good for the economy, despite all the awareness that's out there? Yeah, I think a lot of people see this really feel the needs that we have right now and, and really want to be involved. And I think it comes down to people, I think a lot of people feel overwhelmed and wonder what they can do. But I also think that um, there's been a massive mind shift since I started Dynamic Planet over a decade ago. I think a lot of people are much more open to what might be possible. And we're seeing shifts in business and government. For example, last December at COP15, which is the biodiversity COP, which was um, hosted in Montreal, agreed that the world leaders agreed to 30% of land and sea protected by 2030. So for those of us doing um, work where we're trying to restore nature, that was a really exciting um, global decision where right now about 18% of the land is protected and about 8% of the global ocean. So we have a lot of work to do in the next seven years to restore nature, but there's a lot of groups working on it. And there's money coming in to support that, even new philanthropy money, because sometimes we need grants to transition from what we have now to what could be. The market wants it, but it doesn't necessarily want to pay for it. So government grants and philanthropy help with that. As we approach 2024, are there any new things that you're excited about for Dynamic Planet or any new areas of climate finance that, we, that will be on the horizon in the months or years to come? As we work on conservation economy development, which means getting more of, of the ocean, in our work specifically, getting more ocean protected, there are more and more philanthropic groups that are seeing that they can come in and kickstart and help reset this transition with local communities and government. And then the government can come in with additional financing to help pay for the transition. And then private finance obviously benefits from that as well. And new players come in when there's a better regulatory framework and policy reform. And then entrepreneurs also can help fill that gap too. So I think there's definitely exciting movement in lots of different spaces, including energy, food, and protected areas. Christian, I want to talk about some of your other work. You've advised Global Island Partnership. Small island nations, they have a tremendous presence at COP28. And that's no surprise because they're most vulnerable to climate change. What do people still need to know about these island nations that you think goes under the radar? Um, I'm actually not on the board of GLISPA, but I, I do love them, and they're a great group. Um, the local island networks, uh, including Global Island Partnership, are are really fantastic. One thing that happens with island nations, and we're working um, currently in the Caribbean and in the Pacific Islands, one thing that happens is often they don't feel like they have a big enough voice because they're fragmented. They're fragmented small island states, or we call them large ocean states. But because they're often smaller and remote, they don't get the same attention um, as other countries might. But when they aggregate, they have huge potential and they cover lots of space. So for example, the Pacific Ocean is five times the size of the United States. So um, it's wonderful when these islands get together and they share, a lot of them import 
um, fossil fuels for energy and they export their best um, fish and fruit. So there's a lot of localization efforts so that they can do a lot more um, wind and solar locally, lots more recycling, uh, keep their food local for healthier communities. In fact, we're working with the Pacific Island leaders and they just announced that they have three main goals as you, as you talk about going into 2024 and beyond toward 2030. One is protecting 100% of their country waters with 30% protection, which is fantastic, which means they'll be doing a lot of marine spatial planning and figuring out how to optimize for biodiversity, food, and carbon. The second thing they're really focused on is, is healthy food for healthy communities. So really farming and fishing and making sure that that stays local and healthy. And the third is what you mentioned all along is climate finance. They talk about fit for purpose finance because sometimes these different groups come from different areas and it, it sounds good, but maybe you don't get that grant for three years and you need it now. Or maybe there's a business solution, but it feels too big for a small island nation or whatever. So fit for purpose finance is really important. So it's the right kind of finance at the right time, meeting the right need. Just like if you're a person, you need certain money at a certain time for a certain thing. So does an island nation. More broadly, and to sum it up, which stakeholders are needed to save the environment? Is it just finance and just policies or commitments? Or do we need actions from communities? What matters the most at this stage? Mm, we all can play a part. So I often am asked, you know, given the massive challenges of where we are with um, climate biodiversity, all these other other things hitting us with our energy consumption, but also... Uh, nature loss and other things. What can we do? And it really, the lower on the food chain you can eat, the better. So, you know, um, more plants, less animals in general. And fish are, are half the fish we eat are, are farmed, but they're still, we're still hunting wild fish out in the oceans, which is pretty, pretty wild to think about. So having nature replenished requires um, all these different actors, including our own, our own behavior change. When it comes to business leadership, there's just a consciousness around nature accounting. There's more and more nature accounting in addition to climate and water accounting so that people can think about in my own portfolio of companies or my supply chains, what's really happening with the ingredients that I'm working with. And governments are thinking a lot about, you know, how they how they deal with um, with all these issues. So all these all these players are essential. And that's why you have so many stakeholders here at, at COP trying to figure out all these solutions. All right, Kristen, thanks so much for taking time out of your busy cop schedule to join us. Much appreciated. Thanks for having me. That's a wrap for this episode of Business Extra, recorded at COP28 in Dubai. Thanks so much for listening. Please remember to follow to get all of our latest updates as soon as they come out on your favorite podcasting app. This episode was produced by Doa Farid, Phil Green, and Arthur Edison. I'm Cody Combs, reporting from COP28 in Dubai.